us, our dark passion that makes us money is the film and TV business. So that's the, that's our, that's, that's where we get our, and we come here to cleanse our souls from that, that side of the business. So uh, we're happy to be doing stuff for our kids that, that they can actually watch. I mean, that was really the impetus for, for this book was we were doing a lot of stuff like Nightfall, which is too bloody and the founder, which would probably put him to sleep. So really made, you know, this is something we could do that our kids could enjoy and watch and something that we could do together. So it's good. We've been friends for a long time, Josh and I. So it was good to combine on something, you know? Yeah, agreed. You know, uh, it has been a, <laughs> a storied friendship and it was, it has been really cool having kids and kids that like us are kind of, that are kind of geeks. <laughs> Cause I think that like, you know, this was a way of, you know, not just sort of sharing a message that we believed in, but sort of like sharing a, like a language about magic and, and geekiness that has, that has sort of flowed through several of our prior projects and being able to communicate with that specifically, I'll just say with my daughter in particular is, is really, really pretty, pretty neat to have something that is that tactile a bridge to what we've been writing in other formats for a long time. I think we should call it out the start of the show. We're, we're, we're into it now. Right, we're into it now. Hi, everybody. Hi there, esteemed audience. It's uh, me, your host, Rob Kent. You know who I am. Uh, I'm chatting with uh, Don Hanfield and Joshua Malkin. Did I get both of those pronounced correctly? Yep, you did. Starting off right. We're doing great. <laughs> so a couple of Hollywood guys who've got a new graphic novel, although both of you have done several graphic novels in the past right what, what number is this for each of you and don we'll start with you uh man i i've probably done six comic series to this point probably six or seven i i've have to count them but i started with the rift and um that got adapted into tv and just i, I just fell in love with the i grew up reading comics and just fell in love with the format so i think this is probably my sixth or seventh uh comic series or graphic novel yeah, for me, it's just been two, and both of them have been in partnership with Don. Um, the source, which preceded this and actually is kind of a creative cousin of Unicorn and, and this, but, you know, I've been lucky enough to to collaborate with him twice. Um, or unlucky maybe enough. Someday I'll grow my own wings. You never know. <laughs> unlucky enough, Rob. I think it's, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a mixed bag, isn't it, Josh? <laughs> no it's great i mean you know it's it's you know as i've said to don repeatedly like you know i've been work as a, i've been working as a screenwriter for a long time and have not been lucky enough to have a lot of that material propagate into the screen so like a lot of the stuff that i've written or poured you know a year of my life or two years of my life into sometimes has had these extraordinarily embarrassingly myopic readerships <laughs> like a couple people who are like oh yeah okay well I guess you're done you should move on now and that's it and so Don gets stuff done he gets stuff into people's hands and so it's been a it's been really great to you know to, to work with somebody who when he says hey we're gonna make a book like oh my god there's a book <laughs> like it's amazing I think just to speak to that, I mean, comic books, what I love about comics is a, as a screenwriter, Josh kind of spoke to it. I mean, we spent a lot of our time, I'm, I mean, writing for studios and, you know, five people read the scripts. 
the, the two executives, their bosses. And if they don't like it or that executive takes another job, that thing disappears into the ether. You know, there's no, there's no one else who reads it and never sees the light of day. And what I love about comic books is they get into the world and they have a chance to find an audience and, and build an audience and just be seen. And, you know, it's almost, um, it's there's something magical about it that you know as a screenwriter you don't always get you get those sort of chances to get things made uh they're few and far between you know you write far more and you actually get made so comics is a great creative uh release in that sense what do you know uh up front with an idea whether it's going to be more ideally suited for a graphic novel or for a movie or for the case of unicorn a graphic novel first and then eventually a movie uh and don we'll start with you yeah i mean for me you know i still i'm obviously i've sold i you know do stuff that doesn't start as a comic book um if it's something that is kind of visual or fantastical or something that you know I, I tend to find things that might have a, like the source was a, was a project that Josh and I developed for many years as a screenplay. And it was just such a massive world and undertaking. It was like a $300 million movie. And I was just like, man, this is, no one's going to get this or understand this. And we just kept rewriting it and rewriting it. We never took it anywhere. And then when I started doing comics, I was like, Josh, you know, I'd really love to do that as a comic series. And it just made sense. And the exercise in art of making it into a comic actually helped us kind of finally crack the story because you have to hit certain page counts and certain beats in a comic that you don't have to do in a film or we were just kind of struggling with how to get there and with a comic we could do it and it really was a great experience for both of us and and uh, that, that kind of that kind of solidified it I think for both of us that this is a really great medium and something we love to do and that and that comic found a great audience it sold really well and something we can continue to do. And we haven't even taken that out for film and TV. We're just, we just love doing it as a comic and eventually we'll maybe try to shop it to film and TV, but we're just kind of enjoying exploring that universe in, in the comic space. Uh, Joshua, same question to you. Um, <clears throat> you know, in terms of, you know, do, does every idea sort of smell of graphic novel <laughs> originally, um, you know, I can only say, you know, more than I would have first thought. Like, I, I think that, you know, graphic novels as I've gotten to know them and as I've gotten to become, you know, not just a dabbler, but just a bigger fan of the form and the format, like I've started to realize how extraordinarily elastic it is. Like there are incredible stories, you know, of things that would never translate into a film. <laughs> like, I mean, it, it just can do different things. It's as a two-dimensional story and it can do, it can, it, it can break all kinds of boundaries. Um, the stuff that I gravitate towards, just me specifically, probably could exist in, in, in either space. Um, you know, like, I think that that's just, kind of and I, I think that the same is true of, of Don to a certain extent like there's a there's a cinematic nature to a lot of his ideas and then there's they make great comic books too um and you know just to double down on what he said you know doing when anyone is ever lucky enough of course is like such a privileged thing to say but the opportunity to do a comic book either in conjunction with a screenplay or prior to a screenplay is a huge gift. Like it's just, it, it, you know, it, it happened in both unicorn and source, you know, where there was a screenplay component and, and a 
a comic component and the comic or graphic novel was in both instances instrumental in making the movie version work, not the other way around. And um, I think it was really just thinking in pictures, like honestly, just like literally being like, oh crap, like we don't have a bunch of dialogue. We don't have a bunch, we have a frame, we have a picture, like, how do we tell this much story in a page of just pictures and like remembering you know that sort of visceral and visual of a storytelling like was really transformative it's really been great to sort of go back to that oh yeah right that's how a lot of this how a lot of this storytelling is most effectively rendered so um but like i i like big flashy stuff so i think they make good comic books or movies so like budget, then I assume is not a concern. It's just more economy of your storytelling, making sure you're going to be able to fit it all within the frames that are allotted to you. Yeah, I mean, well, as far as like there's a, you're paying an artist, so there's a page rate, so there is a budget constraint, but it's not like, I mean, and I always say this, an artist don't necessarily like this, but like I say it's the same price per page, whether you have two people talking to each other across a desk or you're like having an earthquake level San Francisco, which I've done. Um, the artist might be like, well, it's a lot harder to draw, you know, Earth, San Francisco collapsing, but from the economics of it, it's the same, maybe not from the time commitment of the artist, but uh, so there's something kind of great about that and, and something as a screenwriter, you're always thinking about budget and you're always dealing with budget and you're also dealing with, frankly, a lot of different um, voices um, creatively and, and there's something about a comic that just really kind of minimizes the uh, the length of the pipeline between your brain and the consumer. And a lot of times it's in conjunction with maybe a writing partner, an artist, a colorist, a letterer, and that's maybe an editor and that's pretty much it. So there's something kind of wonderful and refreshing about it as a, as a creative from a, an industry that understandably has a lot of um, cooks in the kitchen, so. Here's a dumb question from a guy in Indiana who doesn't write screenplays anymore, reform screenplay writer. Um, why not just write a graphic novel every time and then whatever the studio decides to do, not do the machinations of, of Hollywood that may be green lights or not, you've always got a, a graphic novel. Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, that's kind of the, you kind of hit the paradigm on the head, you know, I mean, that really, once I did, once I did the rift, a lot of stuff I do now starts as a comic book. Like I'd say, 80% of it. Now, not, not always, not some things like I just sold a show that hasn't been announced yet to a, a streamer um, as a writer that was based on, loosely based or inspired by a um, uh, uh, short film I had done many years ago. And so that didn't really lend itself to doing a comic book um, in that instance. And certain things are based on history. Like I do a lot of historical stuff. So I pitch shows about like Peter the Great and and uh, you know Stalin and stuff like that, and th those would make great graphic novels. It's just uh, you know sometimes the expediency with which we have to get from pitch to concept to pitch doesn't allow for that that timeline of creating a graphic novel in the middle. But uh, but if I had my druthers, then certainly yeah, I would do everything as a graphic novel first, and then then if it goes TV or film, great. If it doesn't, that's fine too, because it already has a, a life in the world. So. I adore the movie version of the founder, but I would have read that as a graphic novel. That's yeah, a, hey that's a compelling story either way. Would have made a great comic book, man. You know, yeah, for sure. So 
kind of been a problem. It uh, occurs to me that I have been, uh, I've just read Unicorn and very much enjoyed it. I've watched Cabin Fever 2. I've watched The Founder and, uh, mm. uh, and, 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 and Nightfall. Um, but esteemed audience hasn't done those things. They're, they're about to. They're, they're learning about you and they're curious. So uh, for them who does not know your background, I'd never summarize anybody else's book or anyone else's background. That's how I ensure people are going to come back on the show eventually. Uh, mm -hmm. So Joshua, we'll start with you. Give esteemed audience kind of an overview of your background and then we'll dig into Unicorn. Sure. Um, yeah, I'm a filmmaker based in Los Angeles with a background in the the visual arts, painting and sculpture, um, and have been a screenwriter for about 20 years and written about 24 scripts professionally, of which one <laughs> has squeaked through the Play-Doh fun factory of Hollywood. And that one was uh, Cabin Fever 2. Um, Co-wrote The Source with uh, the illustrious Don Hanfield uh, right here. Um, <clears throat> and yeah, I'm hopefully about to embark on a film adaptation of, of, of Unicorn should the, uh, the rainbows of uh, 2022 smile upon us. Um, that's me in a nutshell. And, and, and sure, as far as my background, I mean, I started as an actor, came to Hollywood uh, to be an actor. I'd also had been writing screenplays and I think at a certain point just realized I had to do one or the other. And, and I think, um, Acting is a job where you have to wait for people to call you just for the last one of the party and writing something I could do anytime myself and kind of control. And so I chose writing and worked in cable TV for a little bit. I was a producer at Entertainment Television and helped launch the G4 network for Comcast and then started getting jobs as a studio writer. Um, would write for DreamWorks and Paramount. I was uh, awful at taking notes and I had to sort of learn the hard way how to receive feedback constructively. and. Um, that, that sort of, um, you know, journey led me to kind of producing and producing and, and writing. And, and I, um, when I started a company with an actor named Jeremy Renner, uh, about, he was a good friend of mine from my acting days. And I had a bunch of ideas as a writer that I started doing as just a producer, like hiring writers and was fortunate enough to hire a really talented writer named Rob Siegel to do an idea that had been in my head for many years about McDonald's. And that became the founder. And I wrote a script, uh, for a, on spec with a, a spec pilot with a writing partner and collaborator of mine named Richard Rayner and we were fortunate enough to get that made into Nightfall. Then uh, he and I wrote a comic book called The Rift that we sold to Amblin and Steven Spielberg that became one of the amazing stories and I kind of fell in love with the medium of comic books and you know Josh has been a good friend and a collaborator and we did the source together and then we both had kids at the same age and we were going through kind of a lot of things personally that we were dealing with as both parents and children uh, who were growing up. And um, we kind of settled on doing this, this unicorn together, which has been a great experience. And that's kind of what led us to where we are now. Well, tell your friend Jeremy Renner to hang in there wherever he is. I'm sure something will, will break his way eventually. <laughs> yeah, he'll get there, man. I keep I keep telling, I keep encouraging him. You know, if he works on his chops a little bit, he'll he'll find some success. But no, he's he's doing very well for himself, and he's uh, tell him to practice archery. That that should help. <laughs> yeah, he's an incredibly talented guy and and a good friend, and yeah, he's doing very well. So. And you did uh, kill the messenger with him, right? Yeah, I did. Yeah, we did a movie called Kill the Messenger with actually uh, a, by a great writer named Peter Landisman, who actually is just signed on to adapt a comic book that I'm producing that uh, was written by a guy named Jonathan Hedrick called The Recount. 
it's also another great book, a really great book, uh, very timely, oddly sort of captured a moment, but not in a political manner. But it's a great, great story that I hope to be able to make into a film as well. Is that the one that you were doing kind of with Andy Circus, or is that a different one? No, the Andy Circus one is called Eternus, and that is a, um, uh, from a concept by Andy Circus and Andrew Levitas, who's a filmmaker who just did Minimata with a uh, very talented artist and filmmaker, did a Minimata with uh, Johnny Depp. Um, he's also like a fine artist who does incredible like metalwork pieces and stuff like that. And they had this concept, um, myself and Anna Davis, who was a writer that I met in a writer's room I had for a, a TV show I was developing, uh, came together to write the series and had a lot of fun doing it. And we're it's going to launch the Ashcan launched at New York Comic Con in October and the seven issue series is going to launch uh, next year, I think around June or July. You mentioned your acting days. Didn't you get to do scenes with Robert Duvall in Deep Impact? I did actually. I played his son in Deep Impact and it's kind of a funny story as an actor. I went to the audition for another part. They're like, yeah, you look kind of young for this other part. And like, how would you feel about playing Robert Duvall's son? And I was like, my dad looks exactly like my dad gets mistaken on the street for Robert Duvall. And I told this whole story about my dad has a dent in his forehead, like a, and I call and I call it the family dent. And I told this whole, when I was a kid, I would be like, dad, why do you have a dent in your forehead? He's like, Oh, well, I got hit by a sledgehammer. He was just telling me all these far-fetched stories about it. And Duvall has that same thing. And my dad's also bald. And, and so they're like, yeah, read for this part. So I read for the part of Duvall's son. And then I went back and took him a picture of me and my dad on a mountain in like Utah where he looked just like Robert Duvall. And he used to have a cookie duster mustache. And I got the part. I don't, I don't know if it's because of my acting or because of my genetics, but, <laughs> but uh, it, was, it was fun to work with him, man. Duvall was a genius. I learned more in two days or three days, however long we were on the set with him than I did in you know, an entire university uh, theater, theater study. So he's an amazing guy. Anything specific you could share with us? Um, well, what was interesting about that is like that was uh, Deep Impact was the movie and it was Mimi Leader, who was the director of um, like ER and stuff like that. She was known for these long steady cam shots. So there was a party where they're, they're saying goodbye to their family members before they get in the ship to go try to stop this asteroid or meteor or whatever from hitting in the planet. And because Duvall is such a method actor, he wanted to get to know me. So I, I think more for me. So I felt comfortable around him as his son. So he was talking to me, asking me about my background, where are you from? And I'm from Virginia. He had a restaurant in Virginia. So we were, you know, so he's just talking to me. We're having a conversation. And then without even breaking a beat or changing his cadence, he started doing the lines from the movie. And I was like, what the heck is happening? And I realized the camera was on him. And like, he had, he had so like distracted me that I didn't even know the camera was moving toward us. And he was so aware as an actor and so present he just seamlessly went into the lines and made it a part of our conversation. And I really think it was more about him making a young actor who was probably nervous, feel comfortable than anything else. Um, but that kind of stuff which just blew my mind. And then he was talking about the apostle, which he had just done. And uh, he would start acting out some of these Southern Baptist uh, preachers that he, he followed and he would just become them. I mean, he just turned into these guys. He would just it was, I've never seen anything like it. I was like, you know, I was like amazed at his ability to just become like, it was like he was possessed by someone. It was like very interesting. Um, John Favreau was also on that movie and I was bugging the heck out of John Favreau because <laughs> I wanted to direct and produce. And he was just like, dude, just leave me alone. I'm trying to, I'm trying to do this movie, but a uh, really nice guy. And obviously has gone on to do some incredible uh, world changing media. So. 
Well, here is my tease for esteemed audience is I know that you had a guest spot on Saved by the Bell, the new class, and we are going to talk about it, but we're going to talk about it later in the show after we talk about Unicorn. So that'll be a, a nice a nice little promise to uh, lead esteemed audience. I, I, feel like, I feel like I'm a hip hop artist talking to Nardwar right now. We're like, <laughs> I have no idea. How you know this? <laughs> it's like amazing. <laughs> I know how those guys feel now. I'm like, wait a second. How do you know that? But yeah, no, that's, that's okay. Happy to talk about Save the Bell. Yeah. <laughs> well, I I love that you've got uh, posters behind you for the founder and for you know, obviously for for Nightfall and all that wonderful stuff. We could talk about Mark Hamill. We could talk about Michael Keaton. No, Save by the Bell. We'll okay, cool. No more. <laughs> yeah, dude, I, I love to talk about Save by the Bell. It was an interesting experience um, that a lot of people probably I don't know how many people have talked about what that what that show was like. Um, but yeah, I'd love to. But before we, we do that, I have uh, just this day finished up Unicorn and enjoyed it uh, tremendously. What a, what an experience that it was and uh, what an experience it's going to be when esteemed audience either gets their hands on this thing or they've already read it and they know. Um, so as per my promise earlier, I will not sit, make you sit through me summarizing your work. That would just be painful. Uh, so Joshua, why don't you tell us uh, what we need to know about Unicorn? Um, sure. It, it's um, a story about uh, a young girl who um, lost her mother in a tragic accident in rural Pennsylvania, uh, <clears throat> who um, discovers that she was left um, a horse um, by her mother. Five years have elapsed and a lawyer shows up on their door and says, you have, you have inherited uh, this horse and... Um, this is a young girl who has clung to her mother um, and the loss of her mother very powerfully. And her dad has been mourning the loss of the mother very differently. And um, when she uh, develops, uh, one day she, she realizes that the horse has a, a bump on its head beneath its protective fly bonnet. And she comes to believe that it's a, a potentially more than just a horse. And essentially um, uh, the, the forces of, of the world descend on this farm and she has to uh, collaborate with both her friends and her father um, uh, to rescue this horse, Percy, from people that would do him harm. What do you think, Don? Pretty good, pretty good summary. Anything we need to add? I'll give a B minus on that one. <laughs> <laughs> he did, he did, no, he did, he did, he did good. I, I think the one thing to stress is that the, the only thing I, I think he left out is that the horse was the horse is also kind of mourning the loss of the mother and is sort of um, been contained in a stable because it's considered too dangerous for anyone to get near. And she finally gets near it, and that's when she discovers the bump on its head and thinks that it's a unicorn and. You know, her dad, of course, thinks she's crazy and the horse is just mean and old. And, and that sort of uh, kicks off the story. So I want to know more about your process working together. I know that both of you were inspired somehow in, in some way to deal with this story about the loss of a parent um, by dealing with your own loss. So Joshua, how did the two of you come together? How did the ball get rolling on this? Yeah, I mean, it, it it unfolded in in a couple of legs or waves, but Don had actually had the idea for the story originally just from a trip um, that he had to a farm with his daughter, I believe, actually in rural Pennsylvania, um, <clears throat> and 
you know, he, he shared the idea with me and, and we actually kicked it around for, for a good long while for probably a, almost a year, but it didn't really have a, a heart or a pulse yet. It was just, it was still very much kind of in the, in the shadow of the mythology that we had erected for the source. And we were just still, it was very, very kind of undercooked um, in a thematic and emotional way. And then Unfortunately, um, we both ended up losing. Don lost, um, <clears throat> uh, his wife lost a parent, and my wife lost a parent, and suddenly our children were dealing with um, that simultaneously, these relatively young children, and um, you know, Don and I are friends, and so we're talking about stuff all the time, and it became clear somewhat quickly that that actually was the heart <laughs> that... Um, that unicorn kind of needed, um, and it was a, a way to ex to talk about um, loss and the loss of, of a parent very specifically, um, in a way that you know we felt that we as children or our children um, could could wrap their heads around. Do you guys have a lot of these types of ideas floating around between you? Lots of potential graphic novel movie things that eventually might could happen. Yeah, I think we're always kind of exploring different concepts and ideas and, you know, you'll have them in your head for, you know, as Stephen King, I say the boys in the basement will kind of work on them for a while, you know, and then you kind of just, you have it there, you haven't quite, you have the, the kindling, you just don't have the spark maybe yet, or you have the spark, but not the kindling and you're waiting for that thing to happen. And sometimes it's, it's, it's logistic, it's schedule and timing and what are you doing and what's, what else is on your plate and sometimes it's life. And in this case, I think what also kind of, you know, if you have an engine, it's, you know, air, fuel, and spark. And I think the, you know, we had the, the concept that was kind of there and then this sort of fuel, this sort of, um, the air was sort of this theme, but then I think the spark was also just us as parents, you know, it's like that whole thing of not just dealing with emotions yourself, but trying to explain emotions to kids and, and, and complicated things like loss and death and in a way that's not so sort of fantasy Pollyanna but at the same time not super dark and some of this kid stuff that dealt with um loss it's just it's so dark that it I don't, I don't want to watch it I don't think my kids want to see it either so we wanted to do something that was a little more grounded grounded emotionally but also just a little more hopeful a little more kind of um like kind of a little more fun and, and you know in ways and, and and that was our kind of hope in creating this so you've got your emotional center and you know now that this is a story about loss. So how does the, what's the next step? Does one of you sit down and take a pass at this? Do you go have lunch someplace and start hashing out the details? Joshua, how do you get started? I, I mean, Don is, you know, one of the ways in which we're similar is I think we're both pathological outliners. Um, and Don is also, um, charmingly addicted to a piece of software called Scrivener. Um, <clears throat> great things about Scrivener. I understand. I understand. I, I, I hope they're listening right now and understand Absolutely. the love flowing their way. Um, <clears throat> but, you know, what it is, is, is it's essentially a bullet pointed list of the story um, um, element by element, scene by scene. And it starts with as silly as it sounds, just two or three bullet points, and we just keep adding, and we keep adding, and we keep adding. Um, and most of that work is done together, um, if not physically together because of, um, you know, the apocalypse, then together via screen share. 
Um, and then, you know, we essentially have a to-do list, <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, cool. Now we have our, we have our list of scenes. Now, you know, Scrivener allows this wonderful color coding, um, so that, you know, you can start checking stuff off and Don will do some, I'll do some, we'll swap. Um, sometimes we'll write at the same, same time, but, you know, by the time we've actually started writing traditional scenes, like it feels like we're on draft three or four because the discussions and the ideations have spent so much time in the oven. We've talked about stuff so much um, that in some ways getting it onto the, onto the actual page is not the hardest part. It's, you know, it, everything has kind of been built. If, if, if I could just talk about Scrivener, because I do think it is, uh, I mean, it's an amazing piece of software. I don't know the guy. I'm not at all represented by, I don't have any connection to the company other than just as a consumer. But I worked at E when they were still doing nonlinear mastering of the of their shows, which is uh, like, I'm sorry, linear mastering, where like if you change something in the show, you had to go in and lay it down again and put the piece in, which is like when nonlinear, that's like basically you're editing film, you're cutting it, you're pasting it to the piece. and when nonlinear editing came around, it transformed editorial. You can now just take a clip and slide it in the middle of something and stretch it out. And you can do, and writing is still, most writing software still exists in that linear format. It's Final Draft, it's Microsoft Word. It's like you're writing and it's in this beginning to end format. And what Scrivener does is it really is like nonlinear editing for writing. And you have, it breaks down your story into little pieces and the pieces can be rearranged and the pieces are scenes or the pieces are sequences or whatever you want them to be. I personally break down the scenes. And as someone who's sort of struggled with ADHD my whole life, um, which I do believe is both a handicap and a superpower, it has taken my time for writing a draft from, you know, I used to struggle with studio assignments because I couldn't finish a draft in the, the weeks they had allotted me. And I can now write a draft of a screenplay in just a few weeks. I think partly because of this program, because it's so lays out and, and delivers. And it's also uh, has a great tool for collecting information, references. You can put web pages in it, you can put pictures in it, you can do, it's just this amazing uh, piece of software. Now it's very intimidating. I think Josh is a little bit overwhelmed by all the bells and whistles on this thing. And I keep telling him to try to, once you learn it, you're sort of in it, but it's, um, I can't say enough about how it's transformed my workflow and, and how much I think I mean, I was on the beta team of the final draft software and they asked me like, you know, so I would get the, the early versions. I'm not on it anymore, but they would ask me like, what should we do to make this thing better? And I was like, you should buy Scrivener. <laughs> but again, that would probably ruin Scrivener and does and Scrivener interface with final draft. But, um, but I can't say enough about it. Like if I'm just going to be writer geek and talk about the tools that we have, that is, um, I think a quantum leap from anything else in the marketplace as far as helping you organize and, and execute your ideas in a in a fashion that you know is efficient. Scrivener, I'm assuming you listen each and every week. Uh, you heard it. I think you should hook Don Hanfield up with, with some kind of free program for such <laughs> I have. And you know what? Can you come up enough on this show? You should hook me up too. And Joshua was here the whole time, all three of us. Uh, <laughs> us up with some, with, I don't know, give us a free copy of script. <laughs> I'm good. I'm good. The other thing to say about it is just it's affordable. It's not like Final Draft is, a, is usually expensive. Microsoft Word is usually expensive. This guy who created this, so I think, was a writer. I think it's like $30 for this program. It's like very, very inexpensive. And I can't say enough about it. I proselytize about very few things. And one of them is Scrivener. So 
No, no. It's and, and I will say, because I don't use Scrivener on every single project, I use it kind of uniquely in my collaborations with Don. And just in terms of the question, which was, um, you know, how does your process work? Like Scrivener is like to this day on the project, it's a it's it's the Bible. Like any question, like the history of any idea. Um, because it's so modular, because it's saving so many drafts. Like when I open up that file, you know, if Don is like, oh, how, how did that scene work 10 drafts ago? That's a really easy thing to reference. Um, where did this scene used to go? That's a really easy thing. Well, to that's the other thing to mention is that, and this is becoming an infomercial for Scrivener, but, but that's the other thing to mention is that you can actually snapshot scenes as you change them. So if I change a scene, I can take a snapshot of the old version. So when I go back into that scene, if I'm like, what was it like three versions ago? And look, I'm not super, I'm not always that organized. I'm always combining scenes and pushing them around, but there is a, a utility to do that, which is pretty amazing and, um, and useful. And, you know, and, and look, anyone who's written any screenplay and final draft knows that when you're trying to restructure, you have to open four documents. Here's my new document. I'm going to cut and paste this thing and slide it in and just keep it there for a second. And, you're juggling all these documents. You have to remember where things went. And that's often what would kind of, for me with the, the ADD that would sort of clog the works where I'm like, what, where was that again? Where does that go? And how do I, and this is just breaks them down in little pieces. So it's very simple and you can color code as you work through. And if you have 20 minutes, you can go and look at all the little scenes you have to do and find a small one to work on it and then change the color when you're done with it. And you just see yourself chipping away at this. I mean, I used to take 12 weeks to write a screenplay. I can write one in three because of this program. So can't say enough about it. I'm convinced. <laughs> you heard him, Scrivener. Get us, get us our free swag. Yeah. We want Scrivener t-shirts by the end right. of the week. Come on. Right. Exactly. <laughs> Scrivener trucker hat. I'll wear it everywhere. So um, as far so that's great for the bullet point, the bullet points. You figure out what are the scenes that we need to tell this story. So I'm assuming by that point, you've got your beginning, middle and end, you know, who all the major characters are going to be and what their motivations are going to be. So when it comes down to the nitty gritty, let's write the individual dialogue. Do you do that back and forth? Does one of you sit down and do a draft and then the other one gets on top of it? Joshua, how do you, how do you handle that? I mean, a variety of different ways. Sometimes it's a, sometimes it's a, 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 a trade-off very often it's um you know me over Don's shoulder as he's typing and we're just literally talking it through like in real time um as though transcribing a conversation it's kind of nutty it's a weird thing to eavesdrop on like I'm so glad my wife isn't here to talk about um <laughs> like what that looks like for as a third party <laughs> but um it's it's you know, and, and to be honest, I mean, and just to pay Don a, a compliment, like that's a really hard thing to do. Um, you know, like it's certainly something that I've attempted to mimic with other people and it, it, it fails more often than it works, you know, to like really, you know, be head to head with somebody for six or seven hours at a, at a stretch and kind of like, you know, talking out um, imaginary unicorn lore very passionately mm -hmm. for that entire duration. Um, <laughs> it takes a, takes a unique dedication. So, you know, like, but that's how, how it would work more often than not. Yeah. It's hard to find solid collaborators. You can both stand in a room that long and that you can creatively work with. And I've been fortunate to have done it a few times, but it's not easy. You kind of realize it, it can't be replicated with everyone. And it is sort of a, a gift when it happens. Um, my other 
my partner on Nightfall is an uh, English writer named Richard Rayner. And when we started working together, it was he was very English and very polite about everything. And he would I would be typing and he would be like, Don, I think we should, you know, you kind of beat around the bush. And I'm very sort of American and straightforward. So I was like, look, dude, you don't like something, you just gotta break it down. You can't beat around the bush and be all soft about it and be all English. Just we're gonna be working together. Just if you don't like it, just hit me with it. And so he was like, okay. And then like after two days of that, I would be like wanting to cry in the corner. And I was like, look, you gotta put a little bit of just a little bit back, just a little bit of the the kindness back in your nose. You're gonna really you're gonna kill me. Um, but uh, but you know, so it's 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 always a medium, it's always finding a um, a balance and and obviously the fact that Josh have a friendship and, and enjoy our company uh really helps and um and he he's a great you know the reason i like to collaborate is both as someone with adhd there's something called the body in the room which just having another person in the room helps you focus that's a big part of it but the other part is that um when you write something by yourself you really it's hard to tell if it's good or not because you're the only person listening to what you wrote so you're both the, the writer and the reader and it's really hard to determine whether what you wrote is excellent, okay, or poor, or just bad. And, you know, oftentimes for me as a writer, I'll have to put it on a shelf for four to six weeks and go back to it with fresh eyes and then read it and be like, oh, this is good, or this is bad. And when you have a writing partner there, it's usually that, that four to six week process happens instantaneously. So you sort of get an opportunity to, it just speeds the plow and as far as like getting to a, a good story. And then at some point, you guys get, uh, I'm going to mutilate this name, but Raphael uh, Lerero. How, how do we say that's that? Yeah, Raphael Lerero. That's it. Yeah. So that's, uh, he's the illustrator. At what point does he come into the process? And how does he get to come in without feeling like the third wheel when you guys have been working on this for some time? How, how long did you work on this before you get, before you get him incorporated? Man, I don't know. Uh, not, not too long. But I don't know, for, I mean, for probably a year or two, we kicked it around at least before he came on. True. But, you know, our, our conversations with him, I mean, you know, the, the wonderful thing about the graphic novel is that, you know, we took, everybody made it better. Everybody that touched it made it better. And, um, you know, once he started coming up with designs for things, things started changing. The script started changing. Like, you know, like it was like, oh my gosh. And so, you know, um, the it, the the graphic novel script, I think, had a kind of a, a rebirth once we started seeing pages. Once things started actually um, being generated with a with a degree of momentum, because just seeing it, you know, seeing it cultivate or seeing it realized in real time was you know was phenomenal it was just a phenomenal way of kind of gauging what was working what was not working what we wanted more of it turned out we wanted a lot more of everything and it doubled in size <laughs> um you know over the course of that that period um but you know we were actively revising the document as um Raph was was illustrating um, in a, in a great many ways. Um, he had an entire copy of the book. He knew where it was going, um, but we were still changing. We were still revising in advance of his illustrations. Um, uh, it was very organic. 
Yeah, as far as like Raphael had done, I did a comic series with Raphael called The Mall. And when we were looking for an illustrator for that, I wanted a certain style that was kind of like comic books meet like Saturday morning cartoons. And and I saw his, he, I was looking for artists and I got this, I saw his portfolio somehow. It was like four pages of a comic. And I was like, what comics is this? I love this art style. And he was like, kind of kind of strange about it he never said like it was this comic or whatever and then he was like do you like that and he's like i'll do some test pages and he did some test pages for the mall that were fantastic and what i found out is he was an architect who wanted to do comic books so he had this classical training of like technical drawing and stuff and those pages he did were just like pages he did to show that he could do comic books they weren't from an actual comic and so the mall was the first thing he did and he just i mean the guy is like so talented and so amazing and um when I finished the mall, I wanted him to do some of this. And so I hit him with this and he agreed. And I, I think when he agreed, he didn't know it was going to be a 200 page book. I think we thought, oh, it'll be like 80 pages or hundred pages. And as it grew, you know, that's a, that's a huge time commitment for an artist. And I think for him, you know, you don't know. I mean, look, there's times when Josh and I were in the middle of this where we're like, we're writing a book about unicorns. What was wrong with us? Like what, what, where did we, where did we, how did we get in this place? But, you know, because you lose your way sometimes, you lose, you lose your purpose. And I think, um, you know, for him, I think at the end of the journey, he had some friends that read the book that really were touched by it. And I think that's when he realized, you know, the, um, that what he, you know, the, what he had done. And, you know, he, he's really, I can't say, we can't say enough about, you know, his contribution and how great he was. And, and also, I just like to say that the cover artist, Nicholas Ely, who's a frequent collaborator of mine, he did the cover for The Rift. When he did that cover, we were still in early stages of developing the story. And I was like, we got to do a book that's as good as his cover. You know, it like elevated my thoughts of like what the book should be. And, and you know, I had approached, uh, you know, some people early on with the idea and the concept. And it just really helped us kind of find our way. And, and the, the last thing we should mention, which we'd be remiss not to, is uh, we were very fortunate when we were doing the graphic novel we, we, because we finished the graphic novel script and the art takes so long that he was working on like issue two or three, we were already taking the screenplay out to try to find uh, elements, packaging elements to it with a company called Armory Films, which did Mudbound and Peanut Butter Falcon, some great films. And um, we were fortunate enough to get Debbie Berman, who was the editor of Black Panther and Captain Marvel and Spider-Man Homecoming to sign on to make it her directorial debut. And she comes from that Marvel universe and the editors there are very involved in the story and, and recutting the story and reshooting and all that stuff. So she was very, uh, Deb is uh, incredibly smart about story and gave us amazing notes and feedback on the story. And, you know, I had to say to her one time, like, Deb, if we give you 10 pages of script and you give us more pages of notes than you gave you of script, you're, you're, you're hurting our feelings. You need, you need, you need to bring <laughs> but, um, but, no, but so some of that stuff, because because Raphael wasn't finished with the book yet, we were able to then take some of the stuff that we did, Josh and I would create based on some of the feedback we got from everyone and, and allow that to make the book better. So in some ways, we felt like we were doing like a Pixar or like an animation style where it's like you're doing a version of the book and then you're a version of the movie and then you're rewriting and rewriting as you go. And it's getting better and better and you know we hope to continue that process as we go through the hopefully making the film well now i assume she's excited about the story in a way she might not be if you guys had already completed it fully and then she comes to it 
without any kind of room for her to provide you with more pages of notes than, than, than you gave her originally. Yeah, and she is not afraid to give notes, but the notes <laughs> are all intelligent and thoughtful and they make you better. And that's, again, you know, my journey has uh, been about learning to sort of receive those notes and it just makes things better, you know, so. What, uh, what kind of an update can you officially give us as to where we're at with the movie when we might expect to hear more news and, and see this thing up on the screen? Well, we had some interesting developments in the past couple of weeks and I anticipate we may be able to make a big announcement in the next few weeks about when the movie's happening and with who and we're hopeful, fingers crossed, that we can circle back to you with that information. Fair enough. Uh, and without spoiling, the words to be continued do, do you arrive there toward the end of this story, um, which is odd since all the main characters are dead. I was like, well, who's, who's going to know? <laughs> uh, but uh, it says to be continued. Do, where, where are we at with the, with the continued part? Do we have an idea for, for part two? Is that in development? Yeah, we, I mean, we develop in the sense that Josh and I have it in our, in our, the boys in the basement are working on it, you know, we have, uh, but with the basic concept we have for more than just two, we have the concept for three and four and beyond, but basically the, the basic storyline in, in issue two is that they have, I mean, I want to spoil it, it's spoilers ahead if you guys want to, you know, turn it down, but at the end of uh, the first book, they have actually managed to save Percy from the bad guys, and uh, they are now searching out a lead on another unicorn that they've found was somewhere in Ohio and they're headed there to try to find it. And that is what the second book is about. And then the third book, as you can imagine, is those two then have a baby unicorn that is gonna be the third, uh, the third novel. So that's, that's sort of where we've worked out so far. We also have ideas for other animals so one of the 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 underneath conceits of this whole her mom what you find out was a um a veterinarian essentially for mystical animals so like it wasn't just unicorns there's like a phoenix on the farm there's other animals that need special care and, and protection and you know so there's room to even branch into other we'd always plan to branch into other animals that aren't necessarily unicorns that are in, 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 in our world hiding in plain sight. So potentially this could be a series that, that never ends, that just goes on forever with all the, all the cryptids. Could be, yeah. But uh, to ask, there's a beautiful raw dog quote uh, that opens uh, the, the story. When did you know that that was the right quote for this story? And who... I don't know whose idea is a fair question because I'm assuming it's both of you coming together and agreeing that yes, that is a good quote that has some special resonance, both I'm assuming both for you and for the story. Uh, Josh? Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, there was actually one of a number of quotes, um, like that one I had been aware of. I can't remember who found it as the honest to God truth. So I'll just say Don. Um, <laughs> but the, <laughs> but the, the truth is, um, you know, we've been with this project for a long time, and one of its many lives was um, it, it, it started as on Kickstarter. Um, and in the infancy of, infancy of the campaign, we were populating its page with quotes, with quotes from, um, you know, uh, 
lots of sources, you know, lots of literary sources, lots of, um, you know, our childhood favorites, you know, what did they have to say about um, the show, the, the themes that our, our book was centering on. Um, and, you know, Roald Dahl has been the favorite of both of ours for a long time. And that, that quote has sort of just, it became emblematic during that period. It got the most likes on Instagram. <laughs> it's like, and it's, it's yeah i just think it 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 you know he as a creators obviously but that that specific set of words um you know just started to speak from the book from so started to speak for the book so early on that it was sort of inseparable i'm so glad that it's it's actually part of the printed version yeah and i think i think also just to speak to that it, it kind of encompassed the theme and i think something that you know unicorn and, and in addition the source is kind of about for us which is sort of like magic existing in the real world and you know what is that and and is it something that's just about awareness like you have to be aware to sort of see it and how is it defined and you know I had an experience uh, that kind of launched the source where uh my heart went into atrial fibrillation and and I had to get shocked back into rhythm and after that experience I was going through a lot of like anxiety and just all these like panic attacks and all that stuff I'd never dealt with. And, you know, obviously the, the medical establishment just wants to give you drugs to deal with that. And I'm, you know, I'm 12 years sober. I don't want to take drugs for anything. This is probably about 12 years ago. One of the things that led to my sobriety, but, um, when, uh, I went to, I was going to do yoga and do like things like that to try to meditate and, and do something to sort of relieve the, the sort of massive amounts of tension and anxiety that had come from this experience and a trauma, whatever you want to call it, PTSD, whatever you want to call it. And um, I went to get a massage and the person that was usually there to do massages, Golden Bridge Yoga here in LA. It's like a, like, it was like a yoga, but there was also other little tea places and stuff. And they're like a little mall for yoga. And the, they're like, oh, the, the hot stone massage person's not here, but the Reiki master is. And I was like, well, what's Reiki? And they're like, oh, it's like, a, it's like acupuncture without the needle. And I was like, well, I heard acupuncture was cool. I didn't, hadn't had that at that point. I've had a lot of it since, but I was like, I'll try it. I would have tried anything. They were like, we're going to put tinfoil on your head. I would have been like, let's do it. <laughs> and I went into this, this room and this woman didn't touch me, just held her hands like over my body. And I felt more relief and tension release from that hour than anything I had tried, including drugs to that moment. And it freaked me out because I was always the guy that like, if a girlfriend was like, let me read your aura, I would be like, whatever. I'm science-based, you know, that was my <laughs> sort of background. And my brother's a mathematician, so I'm not a guy who, who really was like into new agey stuff at all. And it was so much, my wife at the time, I sent her, I'd been, she was six months pregnant with my daughter. And I was like, I was like, what are you doing tomorrow? She's like, oh, I'm being, you know, being pregnant, I guess. And I was like, go to, you're going to this person and you're going to do this because I want to know that I'm not crazy. And she went to this person and she was like, I was like, what was it like? And she's like, it was like, I was on Mars. And, and it's something that like, we discount like I was one of the guys that would discount it but there's something there there's something that's happening that we can't define or quantify and that to me is like a modern example of magic and it just got me thinking about do we what have we forgotten because um I read this book also by Candace Pert she was a uh it's called Molecules of Emotion and it was about her being part of the team that won a Nobel Prize uh I think she actually didn't get part of the nomination but she was definitely part of the team for discovering uh, the ganglia along the spine that released the chemicals 
uh, that serotonin and dopamine, all those things that could give us our emotions. And she talked about how when they when they announced the research, like, oh, we found these ganglia along the spine that release these, these chemicals. She said this old uh, Indian man showed up at her office and was like, hey, can I see your, where, where you have these ganglia mapped out? And she like laid it out on the ground and uh, on the table. And he took a, a 3000 year old Sanskrit scroll of the chakras and he laid it out over top these ganglia and they, and they lined up perfectly. And I was just like, wow. So we needed an electron microscope and dissection to find things that 3000 years ago, they just knew of from their senses. So it just, that to me was part of the journey of the source, which then turned into the journey of, of unicorn was that sort of, we write about what we don't understand. And I wanted to understand more about this thing that I found incredibly fascinating, but also part of me was like, it's, is it real? So that was kind of the journey. Well, that is a perfect transition to a question that I ask every guest that ever comes on this show. Okay. Um, and Joshua, we'll start with you. I always ask, have you ever seen a flying saucer and or a ghost? Mm. Um, flying saucer, no. Um, and, and it's an unfortunate no with many hours of trying <laughs> logged. Uh Many, many, many earnest hours uh, of sky gazing uh, without UFOs. Um, ghosts, uh, without being uh, taking up too much airtime, yes, but not in any of the instances in which I would have expected or wanted. I've been lucky enough to write horror content most of my screenwriting career, so I've been on ghost hunts and in seances and, um, <clears throat> and uh, have yet in any of those experiences to have something um, like truly shockingly revelatory happen in my presence. I've been in the presence of people for whom things have happened, um, but in my own um, and both are sort of cloaked in that like weird cocoon of memory and mismemory were both when I was a kid, but I did have two experiences, um, very powerful experiences when I was younger with ghosts. So you're 100% on board that there's, if not an afterlife, something to this whole ghost thing. There's something to this whole ghost thing. That is exactly how far out onto that plank I tend to walk. There is something, I don't know what, but there's something more than we understand, more than I understand. Does that not fill you with greater caution when you're thinking about going on ghost hunts or going after uh, research for horror stories? You'd think, right? You'd think it would. You know, this is this is a point my my wife has made repeatedly. Um, <laughs> but, but but no is the more honest answer. <laughs> it has made me more steadfast and more curious. Um, sort of more eager for that kind of affirmation. So um, uh, I'm dumb is the takeaway here. That's the subtext mm -hmm. that we've been mining. Now you're going to find the next great screenplay. It's it's out there. <laughs> uh, Dot, same question to you. Have you seen a flying saucer and or a ghost and or both? Um, you know, when I was in Boy Scouts in camp, we saw a Russian satellite burning up in space and it's it's the most beautiful thing I've probably ever seen. Um, it was like someone painting the sky with light. Um, but as far as like a UFO, have not. Um, I did see 
a crazy post on TikTok recently where they had like these coordinates for this place north of LA. It looked like this kind of Millennium Falcon like thing. And they said it was like a portal to another planet. And, and then on the Google Earth, you can see tanks parked in the desert around it. And I was like, whoa, this is crazy. And I put the, I was like, this has got to be not real. And I put the coordinates into my app, my Google Maps. And sure enough, it's there. And I actually did, it's north of LA. So I did the driving directions and it's three hours and 17 minutes. And I was like, tempted. So man, maybe I'll go <laughs> off into the drive and we'll, we'll, we'll let you know how it goes. But, uh, but no, I do believe there's, they, there's aliens and, and, or they come from another dimension or whatever. And I have friends that do documentaries on this stuff. And I've had conversations with people who absolutely believe it. I think it's true. I'm more shocked by the indifference of the world when they announced there might be aliens than I am of the fact there might be aliens. The fact that people are like, just continuing about their daily lives when they're like yeah they're probably aliens the pentagon says that we're like uh you know there's not it's not like like you know when orson wells did it it was causing mass hysteria now people are like whatever you know pass a pass the soda i don't know so but direct experiences i don't delve in horror i'm not as brave as josh i try to stay away from it i'm producing one horror film now with cg entertainment that did parasite but it's not a space I live in or spend a lot of time in, I think because it scares me. So that's the, that's the short answer. And, but do I believe in that stuff? Yeah. Have I experienced it directly? Not, not directly. So. If you drive out of the, the three hours and get sucked into the rift, I mean, that headline writes itself right <laughs> off of the rift, get sucked into the rift. But that's why I take Josh with me. You understand? So he goes first. And right. Then- no, I'm, I live to tell the tale. I live to propagate your mythology, Don. That's that's my that's my role. I think I just, I'll let you have the experience, Jess. I don't want to take it from you, man. We can't both get sucked in. Somebody's got to stick around. I'm, I'm, I'm with Rob here. I'm really with Rob. Someone's got to be outside the vortex. It's very. You know what? We'll we'll find a third party to come with. We'll <laughs> Until Unicorn 3 is safely uh, written in, in a Scrivener file someplace. You guys can't both go someplace yeah, together. That's true. <laughs> that's true. Until until that's on wax, we can't do it. So, well, okay. A question I have wondered about uh, since I, I, I've seen it, I think, three or four times now. I really love The Founder. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I've always wondered, my, my God, the producer is here. So this is my chance to, to find the answer. Did I, it seems like McDonald's was kind of involved with the movie. I mean, you, you're shooting at a lot of McDonald's type locations. You've got the arches right there on the poster. Um, it's, I mean, it's an incredible movie. Michael Keaton, one of the greatest actors who, who, who ever lived, uh, as far as I'm concerned, and not just because he was Batman, although that's a big part of it. Uh, I mean, Dope Sick alone was 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 tremendous, uh, and also Worth, underseen film. Everybody should check out Worth with Michael Keaton. But the founder, an incredible performance. It's but it's 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 like Breaking Bad, but in 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 two hours. And it does not speak well for Ray Kroc. And so I wondered, did, did, did McDonald's, did they participate and just not read the script? Or did they go, what are you going to do? That's that's the story of Ray Kroc. How did you walk that line of getting them involved without them worrying about tarnishing the brand a little bit? Well, to, to talk about the quick origin story, I remember it as a kid going to McDonald's with my dad and seeing the bronze plaque on the wall that said founder Ray Kroc. And I remember even as a kid, the cognitive dissonance of how did a guy named Ray Kroc 
found a, a place called McDonald's. It didn't make sense to me as a, as a eight-year-old. And when I was older, I heard a song by Mark Knopfler from Dire Straits called Boom Like That. And if you guys listen to that song, it's the Ray Kroc story. It's about him. And, and I just, I listened to the song and I was like, what is this about? And I was fascinated by it. So I read Ray Kroc's book, Grinding It Out. I knew there was no way to get the rights to that. I read a book by John Love called Behind the Arches, uh, called the publishing company by getting the rights for that. I chased rights for probably five or six years, maybe longer, called the publishing company on that, or I called McDonald's. And, and I realized that McDonald's had purchased the rights to these book, books and probably buried the authors in cement. Like they didn't want this story told. That's, I'm totally exaggerating. I don't want to get sued by McDonald's, but there was just not a appetite for the story to be told. Um, and I was reading somewhere that the McDonald's family um, had something to do with a motel chain. It was, I, I was Googling late one night. I'd started the company with Jeremy and I mentioned this to him. He was like, that's a great idea. Let's go after it again. I'd already tried so many times. Um, and then I, I found this motel in Massachusetts and I just reached out to the manager and I said, hey, does the McDonald's family own this? Have anything to do with the motel? And they're like, yeah, they're actually, they do. I said, here's my name. Here's my information. I'd like to talk about making a movie about the origin of McDonald's. And the nephew of Dick McDonald, or the, I'm sorry, the grandson of Dick McDonald called me, Dean French. And he said, or um, uh, not Dean French, that's right, last name French. Who, and he said, we've been waiting for 50 years for someone to, um, to tell our story. And they had articles and letters and audio recordings of Ray Kroc, because they used to send these dictaphones back and forth with each other. So they had like audio recordings of like Ray Kroc talking and then it'd be the McDonald's brothers talking and then they send it back and forth. So it was like this treasure trove of like this archive of this, this amazing information. And McDonald's would not give you permission to do this. But what I did was I got the life rights to the McDonald's from the McDonald's family. And then from there, there's a guy that I have to mention. His name is Michael C. Donaldson. He's one of the foremost First Amendment lawyers in the business. And Michael is the guy when they did Escape from Tomorrow, where they filmed a horror movie at Disneyland without permission. And He's the guy who got them the, who, who helped give them the first amendment basis for that. But to explain to people in a nutshell how it works, basically you get a great lawyer like Michael Donaldson, who's a first amendment expert to write a brief saying why this is covered under fair use. I mean, McDonald's is a very well-known brand. Ray Kroc is no longer living. You can tell this story. Um, and then you take that brief that he writes and you go to an insurance company and that insurance company goes, well, this guy knows what he's talking about. He's a first amendment lawyer. And you get that insurance company that insure you. So if you get sued by McDonald's, they're going to pay for the lawsuit. So that was essentially the process. Now McDonald's has a, um, they have a museum that has a lot of information. One of the things our art director was trying to figure out was how the speedy system actually worked. Cause we want to recreate the, the thing as closely as possible. And they actually did send us a brochure that outlined the speedy system in a way that allowed us to recreate the restaurant in a way that I don't think has ever been done as accurately. So they were helpful in that way. I talked to a guy who was like the PR guy, super famous guy, like the PR guy for Ray Kroc for many years. And he called me and was talking to me and I was calling to talk to him about, to get some information. And I realized about five minutes into the call that the only person getting information was him. And, uh, he was very good at his job. Um, but, uh, you know, for the most part, I think it's interesting because I don't, I actually, there's, there's, you know, look, you watch it. It's kind of a Rorschach test for capitalism. That's what I always saw it as. It's like sustainable capitalism. 
versus like burn down every truffle the tree capitalism that Ray Kroc represented. But anyone who's an entrepreneur, anyone who works and tries to achieve, they can't not look at Ray Kroc and admire him. He was 52 years old when he took on with the bat, he had health problems failing when he started and he got into McDonald's. So the fact that he built into this world empire at his age is inspiring to anyone. So I don't think, I never set out to vilify Ray Kroc. I never set out to, I mean, I certainly didn't see him as the good guy, um, but you have to respect him. You have to respect what he did and what he represents. And I feel like that story of McDonald's was a really a battle for the soul of America and Ray Kroc won and his style of capitalism, that sort of no holds barred capitalism won. And, you know, and that story really fascinated me, but the, um, you know, we had examples of what it would have looked like if it stayed in the family. Like we had in and out Burger, which is very much pays our employees well and does a great product and all these things that kind of reflected what McDonald's might have been. But I think anyone who watches it, they come out, you know, because McDonald's, I think from a corporate standpoint, have this, this, you know, they feel like a corporate machine. And I think when you watch the founder, when you look at McDonald's, you see two brothers who loved each other, who wanted to make food that was affordable for families. And I think from a brand standpoint, while it might've tarnished them about Ray Kroc and his founder and being the founder, I absolutely think it helped them in the sense of people seeing these two brothers who had this just great concept for making food that's affordable and great. So just an absolutely tremendous film. And uh, mm, thank you, man. And it's a, it's a well, you don't need me to tell you the whole <laughs> the whole world is uh, celebrating the founder. It's, uh, mm. it's, it's just a tremendous piece of cinema. Uh, Joshua, a question I had to ask you, I saw on your resume a title I'm not familiar with, and I bet esteemed audience would like to know a little bit more as well, and then we'll start to think about landing this thing, but I saw that you're a story architect for video games. I have done that job. I've been lucky enough to do that a couple of times. Yeah, it's been, you know, again, it's just another way in which I've been lucky enough to spin my extraordinary nerdery um, into employment opportunities um you know in each of those instances it was i wasn't writing content for the game specifically i was um <clears throat> this is not a phrase that most people will know but i'll explain it like kind of ip mining like they had uh like here's the game concept and i i sort of brought in to be like okay well this game is set over the course of 500 years of human history here's a whole bunch of other things <laughs> that could exist within that span here's a cool idea for a comic book here's a cool idea for a novel here's a cool idea for a series here's here's just a bunch of ways in which the the intellectual property that you've already invested in massively can <laughs> continue to be narratively exploited and so um it's a really fun it's a really fun really weird job but yeah i mean i'm a big video game player i know don is too we don't play the same stuff unfortunately but um <laughs> um but yeah getting to work in that space is super exciting what are uh, some of your games that you like to play when when you're on downtime me personally uh-huh yeah, I mean, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a puzzler. So, like, all of the games that I invest in are narrative-based um, puzzlers. Like the one, the one that I, I've probably replayed more than any other series is the two Last of Us games, um, which I thought were extraordinary and brilliant. Um, you know, they're, they're 
40 hour movies a piece for all intents and purposes in which you get to play a protagonist you get to play one of the people and it's just a it's yeah those are those two would come top of mind i agree except i still hate abby like i get it i, 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 I felt some empathy for her but they never got me all the way still hate her i understand i understand it's a debate i've had many many times we will not go through it now <laughs> And you know what? If we take well, slight spoiler, but if we take the big murder that she does out off the table, like that's fine. Maybe I'm okay with that. Just the fact that she turns on all her own people. Um, it was one thing when Joel shot up the hospital, and I realized that they're trying to mirror that she's become the new Joel um, when she goes on her rampage. But she's killing her own people. She's lived with them since childhood. Like Abby, you're just not a good person. Stop it. <laughs> I don't know what it says about my my weird brand of empathy <laughs> that, like, <laughs> that I can still feel for her. I that probably says something horribly bankrupt about me. But the truth is, it did it did it. And look, it's not an easy relationship with that character at all. But that's part of what I what I really really respected and admired about the the games that it just it it wasn't black and white in any way. Like it's it's. <laughs> It's not, no, and I, I did feel some empathy for it. When I played as, as Ellie, I was very careful. When I played as Abby, I just walked her up to the zombies. And... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I get it. I get it. We all have our favorites. Well, I've got uh, one last question for both of you, but before we do it, I made a promise to esteemed audience, and I try never to break a promise. Uh, Don, I believe we were going to discuss the experience of guest starring on an episode of Saved by the Bell, the new class. What is that experience? Uh, you know, look, I had a, a very small part in, in the show. I mean, I, I grew up watching the original Saved by the Bell. So as a young actor, it was this amazing, you know, opportunity. Um, I was, it's a three camera kind of vibe in, in a studio. Um, I did it with another young actor um, who actually is a film producer now named Ali Afshar. He was playing another character in the show. And I remember he was very nervous about his lines. He's like, he's like, dude, how is, how is it sounding and stuff like that? And I was just like, Dude, it's saved by the bell. Like, if you if your acting is too good, you will look you will look you will look like you're not a part of the same show. But um, but no, it was look. It, what what surprised me the most about it was seeing into the machinations of the business side of it. And these are these are young kids. I mean, I was in my early twenties, and some of these kids were I think younger than that. And after the read through of the first session, I remember we were all eating and we ate with them. They were very gracious to have us eat with them and didn't treat us like we were just there for an episode. And, and, uh, but I saw the producer, this man who came down and was like, you know, you guys got to have a good show. And it was just like, it was like watching a, a coach before the Super Bowl just put this pressure on them to have a good show. And, and I would just remember thinking like, wow, that's really not what I expected the experience to be like. And, um, but yeah, it was, I mean, look, it was a, it was a amazing experience for an actor to sort of experience that. And as a writer, all those things helped me being on all those sets and seeing the different ways that different shows worked, a three camera versus a, a single camera. It was all things that informed my producing life tremendously and my writing life. So I think that both of you have got 
Well, so many wonderful stories that if I knew how to write, ask the right questions, we we could do this. Uh, we could do a whole series of these. <laughs> and I know that there's going to be two more unicorn books. So come back and we'll we'll talk <laughs> cool. about them I'm some more. I'd love to, man. I'll do so. Um, for tonight, my last question for each of you is: If there were some piece of advice or as many pieces of wisdom as you want to share, you could go back and tell to a younger version of yourself. It might have made easier your path, your writing journey, that might make easier the writing journey of everybody who's watching or listening to us right now. Uh, what would you go back and tell yourself? Uh, and Joshua, do you want to go first or should we throw it to Don? Sure, I'm happy to. Um, honestly, I don't, I think it's a, it's a very simple boilerplate answer, but it's very earnest is, you know, I would remind myself to not, to never get dissuaded from writing the kind of stuff that I know I want to read. Um, I think that, you know, particularly as a younger writer, like I kept trying, it's very tempting to try and want to guess <laughs> like what other people want to read. Like, like I want to, I want to, I want to rise to the marketplace expectation and give everybody exactly what they want. Um, whether or not it's exactly what I would consume, that's secondary. And like the reality is the stuff that I've had the most luck for, the most enduring passion with, um, has been the stuff that I've done for me, that has come from me, that I really like, that I long to read, um, that hasn't involved a lot of guesswork about, like, what will other people, <laughs> what will other people think? Will everybody else like it? Um, that's always going to be an element, and there's always going to be a, a, a fraught element of that to the marketplace, but um, yeah, I would remind myself to put my own taste front and center as often as is humanly possible, which I very quickly forget sometimes. I mean, just to speak to that before I answer, um, you know, it's, uh, you know, when I was writing for studios and I was writing comedy, I would start thinking like, what will that person who's going to read this think is funny? And that's such a death trap because mm -hmm. you can never know what someone else will think is funny. And you're trying to write from a place of inauthenticity. And it was really hard for me sometimes but to remember that you have to write what you think is funny and you know to, to fast forward to nightfall i mean i wrote that with richard on, on spec like we just wrote a spec pilot we were like i loved excalibur growing up i, I loved the templars i was fascinated by the mythology i'm a big star wars fan and i was like these guys were the inspiration for the jedi knights no one's ever done a series about them and we wrote that pilot on spec and i gave it to my agent uh, and my agent was like i read it I, I, I loved it. I think the writing is great, but he's like, but why did you write this? I'll never be able to sell it. It's a period piece. It's set in the middle ages. Like you wasted your time. You should have called me before you wrote it. I would have saved you three, three months of your life. Next time before you write something, ask me. And I was like, you can't sell it. He's like, no. He's like, maybe if like Brad Pitt wants to produce it, I can sell it. So he, he went and tried to package it for like four months, five months, six months, didn't package it. I was writing another story that I was going to take out. And I, I was in Bulgaria shooting a, a, a film and I was like hey man I got another story coming I just send it out if it doesn't sell it doesn't sell and he sent it out and we had a bidding war between Amazon and History Channel which again is like just to speak to what Josh said it's like nobody knows like it's like William Goldman said like nobody knows anything about what they're what people are going to like or receive and if you spend your time writing what other people like you're not doing something that you like so I've always tried to do things that I liked and against i'm the opposite i probably haven't listened enough to people telling me <laughs> you know what i'm saying so it's um but it's very important to do the things that you it takes so much chi to write something it takes so much energy life energy that i think it's really important to to do that i mean I'll, personally as far as like what i would tell myself 
I mean, I'm probably uh, the opposite of Josh in the sense that I've always kind of rode my own way. And, and, and I think part of what I would go back and tell myself is two things. One is get a job as an assistant in a writer's room on a TV show because it's the last true apprenticeship in Hollywood. And if you get that job, you have, a, I think, a pretty clear path to being a professional writer. Um, the other thing I would say is just, is just learning how to take notes, you know, and I don't know if that's something you can tell someone. I think I had to really, you know, when I started writing for the studios, all my friends were indie film auteurs and they had all like once, you know, my friend won Sundance and those aren't guys that take notes. They, they sort of create something and they bring it to the world and the world appreciates it or not. But when you're writing a studio system, it's all about taking notes. And I think for me, I didn't really get a sense of how difficult it was to work with me when I was a younger writer until I started giving notes to other writers when I was starting a production company. I was still writing, but I was now taking ideas and giving notes to other writers. And, and some of them that wouldn't listen, it was like, wow, this is like really hard and painful. And it, you also realize how it sours the person who actually has to sell and champion your work. So you're not only not listening to them, so you're not making your product better, but you're basically telling the person who has to go sell your product that they now might not believe in it because you're not listening to what they're telling you is wrong with it. And that to me is a double whammy that you don't really understand until you get on the other side of it. So if I could go back and make myself understand that and be more receptive and, and, and have more skill at actually listening and taking notes, that, that would be my thing I'd go back and say to myself. Gentlemen, it's been an absolute privilege and a pleasure. Uh, esteemed audience, as always, for all the best interviews with all the best writers, literary agents, editors, book people, all the best people, head to middlegradeninja.com, download your free copy of Manicure Bones and the Giant Robot Bees. It will change your life. And as always, God willing, I'm alive. I'll see you next week.